Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy fall college football season, which is the favorite time of year. If you grew up in Columbus, Ohio, like I did. <laughs> Nothing against the Hoosier and the Boilermaker fans. The Boilermaker fans who ruined our season last year. Let's not even talk more about that. But uh, My name is Steve Adrianson. I was here earlier this summer as a guest, and I've been here in town uh, spending some time with some of those in your church family. This young man is among them. I'm gonna put somebody else on the spot. That man who's my age, can you come up and join us too, my brother? I know, he, he didn't even know this was coming. I'm gonna invite him to come up. There was another couple that was gonna be up here this morning, but they had family sickness, and they were unable to join us, so you were on the spot. So he's had no opportunity to think about this. He has had a little bit. So they're among a larger number of people uh, in the Sunlight Church family who has been spending some time this summer thinking about this theme that the New Testament talks a lot about, the theme of one-anothering. There are a bunch of one-another encouragements in the New Testament. John, next week, will be talking about encouraging one another. Last week, praying for one another. The week before, serving one another. And this morning, we're gonna be thinking about, I guess you'd call it a double header of one another's. More about that in a minute. But I just wanted to ask these two brothers, one of them closer in age to me, one of them about half our age, uh, just how it's been striking them and what they've been thinking about. But before that, I just wanted to tell you briefly how it impacted me. I, like this brother who will introduce himself in a moment if you don't know his name, were not raised in a Christ-following family. Were you? Yes. You were, okay. So two out of three of us were not raised in a Christ-following family. And when I was in high school, I was very spiritually open because I had almost died twice. I died, almost died of a, in a coma that was related to an asthma attack mixed with a polio-like virus one time. Another time I was actually run over by a truck, which my children think explains a lot, okay? So I, I almost died. By the time I was in ninth grade, I was thinking things about life and eternity that most freshmen in high school were not thinking about. And so when I was exposed to the great news, we call it the gospel, the New Testament calls it the gospel, the first thing that struck me was that, man, I, I have a, an assurance of where I'm going to go should I die the next time that I come to death's doorstep, which who knew how long that would be. And, and I experienced something of forgiveness, uh, an assurance that that's all in Jesus' hands because of what he had done for me on the cross. And I realized that when I put my personal trust in him and received his gift of forgiveness, I was going to heaven someday. And that was in, I was in God's grip. And many of you have experienced a time in your life where you tasted that. But for me, there was something I did not realize. I thought that's all there was. I thought that's all there was to God's gift of forgiveness, to his gift of salvation, to his gift of eternal life. But boy, was I wrong. Because at that moment that I trusted in what Christ did on the cross for me personally, at that moment, I was also adopted into his family. And immediately, I had other brothers and sisters in that family. Most of them older, if not chronologically, at least more mature than I was, because I was a baby at that moment as a 15-year-old. However, I had brothers and sisters. And then I started meeting with other, these brothers and sisters and realizing how much of the New Testament talks about how we should relate to each other within God's family 
in healthy ways, in mature ways. So that is the setup of how I came to see it. I, I didn't even see it coming. Some of you in this room are like, yeah, I can think back when I trusted Christ, or maybe you haven't come to that point of personal choice to do that yet, and you're, you're wondering what else is involved. Well, this was a gift. Being born into a family with brothers like this younger one and this one that's my age was a gift to me, just like it's a gift to anybody who puts their personal faith and trust in Christ. We are born into not just a vertical relationship, we're born into horizontal relationships that we actually, as the New Testament teaches us, realize help us enjoy our vertical relationship even more. So with that in mind, I'm gonna start with you because I'm putting you completely on the spot. Thanks, I appreciate that. First of all, tell everybody your name and um, how many, maybe, how many in your family and how long you've been coming to Sunlight. Uh, yeah, my name is Ryan Stellhorn. Uh, my wife's right over here. We have two boys, we'll call it six, and in like four days, and then eight, they're back there. Uh, so the four of us, I don't know how long we've been here, maybe two years, roughly. About two years we've been coming here and uh, you know, we've, we've, we've felt embraced. We really have and that's what kept us coming back. So, so as you've been thinking about this one anothering theme, um, you, like, you like me, it was in college, right? Didn't you right. hear the good news at Purdue or? Yeah, I was saved at Purdue of all places. Seems like a, a strange place to come to faith. Um, but I grew up and I was, I was not quite as open as it sounds like Steve was, and I was, I was kind of an antagonist, actually, and you can ask my wife, you can, she can tell you stories of, I would just be bombarding people that I knew were Christians with questions. So your wife of. knew you before you were a Christ follower? Unfortunately. Boom. <laughs> she did. Um, and, and I was kind of an antagonist. I wanted to prove it wrong, is what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't grow up in a... We didn't really talk about spiritual things in our house. It just, it just wasn't a topic. It wasn't, it wasn't anything we you know, ever talked about. And I was a little bit curious, but I didn't want it to be true. And, and I wanted to prove it wrong. And um, my journey really started at Purdue. Uh, uh, there was a kid named Nick. He lived on the, the same dorm floor, a couple rooms down, played a lot of Mario Kart, a lot of, you know, GoldenEye was the thing at the time in Nintendo 64, dating myself a little bit. But... Um, you know, just conversations through him. He had some answers and some perspectives I'd never heard before. And it, and it broke down some barriers for me. Um, but it, it was a process. It was a long process. And, and that's an example, I think, of together. And it was, it was him and I just playing games, hanging out, studying, whatever. I'm not a lot of studying, but, um, you know, just conversations. And, and it and was he, afraid of the He questions. was a Christ follower at he the was. time. He was, he was. And yeah. obviously, he, was, he cared for you, so he was pursuing you. So after you put your trust in Christ... That was probably your first one anothering context yeah. that you had. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. And um, I was impressed by him because I think as Christians, I have this perspective now too, when, when we're faced with questions, we kind of get scared. We're afraid of these questions because mm. we're afraid where the answers might lead. Mm. And, and he wasn't afraid of the questions. He embraced the questions. Mm. And he was asking questions himself. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a journey of discovery. Mm. And I, I, think that's, I think that's an important process in developing and deepening our faith. Amen. Well, let's fast forward to however many years later. Now you and your wife are, you have two boys, right? And you are striving to encourage them and be models for them on what it looks like to follow our Savior. So how did thinking about some of these one anothering principles impact you guys this summer? We, we've been talking about this for some time. I didn't, as, as I mentioned, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have my family was great, loved my family, but I didn't have that model of what a Christian father looked like or what a Christian so mother looked like. So this is being a 
you had no picture image in mind? None, none at all. And, and uh, we, we've talked about that. And we've talked about the, the concept of community. Actually, we, we took our boys and we went out to Dutch Creek Farms yesterday and then went to Shipshawana and everything. And, and the boys had a ton of questions. They were asking all about the Amish culture and all that stuff. And, and Matthew, our oldest, was really fascinated by it. He's like, I would love to live in a place like this, but I like technology. And, you know, he wanted that. And, and I think of our, our, our modern culture, and we've progressed in a lot of ways. We've progressed with technology, we've progressed in healthcare, all this stuff. But one thing I think we're losing is that sense of community, mm-hmm. where you belong to a community, not just your family unit or your neighbors, but your community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, I think we're suffering because of that. I think you see that around our, our culture that because we're missing that, we're missing out on something really important. And, and, that, and it's interesting, the New Testament speaks directly to that. Yeah. Because community is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. It's not just me treating somebody in a certain way. It's me putting my heart in play so that somebody else has an opportunity to treat me the same way. So that's, it's a two-way street. And so you and your wife have particularly, in the, in the whole concept, even though she was raised in a Christian home, right? I think, I remember that. But you've been thinking about how can we rely on what other people provide for us as far as encouragement or whatever. What, right. Say more about that. Right. right. And we talked about that, of, of having a community where, number one, I want to learn from other people that have kids. I want to learn how to do this Christian parenting thing. You know, and I want to learn the struggles. I want to, I want to share the struggles with them. I, want, um, I, I, want to, I just want to do life together with other believers in, in similar stages of life and, and build that community. There are circles, that, the, the term that was thrown around earlier. And, you know, I, I think about when, when kids are young, my kids are six and eight, and when they're young, you're the primary influence. And as they get older, their friends, I work in a school, I see this, their friends become more and more of an influence. And other people, other adults, coaches, teachers, whatever, become influences. And you can, you can just do a quick Google search and you'll find millions of results of why millennials are leaving the church. And I'm technically a millennial, and that's kind of a bad word thrown around sometimes because everybody hates on the millennials. But um, I decided I was going to Google, why do millennials stay in the church. Why do, young, why, why do young people that stay, why do they, they stay? And the number one reason for most of them was one other adult other than a parent hmm. had invested in their life spiritually. Hmm. And, and I found that fascinating. What a simple solution. Hmm. You know, what a simple solution to this faith development. It's not a program. It's not a, a, a thing that you do. It's just one person taking an interest in that child. And one of the things we thought about this summer was it being a two-way street it's not selfish for you and your wife to desire to have other adults speak into the lives of your kids, be models for them. That's not selfish. As a matter of fact, that's the way God designed it to be. It takes, it takes the weight off. Well, appreciate you sharing that, Ryan, very much. I owe you. <laughs> Maybe I owe you twice. Okay, tell everybody, tell everybody your name and... A little bit about yourself. I'm Brad Gardner, uh, married to Carol Gardner, and uh, we've been here at Sunlight for, man, I don't know if it's been 25 years yet, maybe 22, 23. Wow. Been a while. And uh, so we have six children uh, that are all grown, and um, so for the most part, we're empty nesters. Uh, we have, uh, it's the last few years have been transitional for us, uh, kind of transitioning into retirement, and now we have some grandchildren in our lives and more on the way. So it's an exciting time for us. 
Well, I was struck in a conversation I had with you, so I'll, I'll refer back to something you can remember probably. Mm -hmm. um, you and I have thought a lot about one another in, over the years, but something struck you about it as we were considering that theme this summer mm -hmm. that also has struck me recently. I won't mention what it is. Maybe you can say more about it. Well, it was the, probably the biggest impact uh, thought that I had during our meetings uh, during the last few months was just how intentional we need to be uh, as we're investing in one another, uh, especially if, if we're in a small group or, or even just attending on Sunday. If we're going to really contribute to one another's lives, we have to give it some thought ahead of time. It, it doesn't happen if we just show up on Sunday and talk to briefly whoever we do for a minute or two and are out the door to really invest in one another's lives the way that God wants us to. It really takes some some planning to a certain extent hmm. and getting to know uh, one another. So that was one of the things that hit me was how intentional we need to be with our schedule, just with our thinking of how we can encourage this person or this couple or this hmm. child. And what's encouraging to me, Brad, is after you've been following Christ for all of these years, you would still be soft-hearted enough to see that and be open to that. Yeah, I. well, the thing that occurred to me when I thought of how intentional you have to be is that even though we have supposedly been semi-retired for the last few years, we're still incredibly busy. And no matter where you are at your stage of life, whether you're a young couple with kids or you're single and in school, whatever the, the case is, you are busy. And there are lots of demands on your time. And I'm the same way. And it just doesn't come naturally uh, for me to... Uh, be totally prepared in investing in other people's lives. So I have to think about it ahead of time. And uh, it, it involves, you know, giving God some of that time back that he's given us and, and not just being totally self-centered. And it's very easy for me to be focusing on all the things that I want to get done in my to-do list. These to-do lists are, you know, like we all have, are, uh, they can be overwhelming. And, and Nobody never else is. in this room can relate to that, Brad. <laughs> so it, it's just simply a matter of saying, Lord, you know, this amount of time needs to be yours and investing in other people and investing in my small group, yeah, uh, these children, whatever the case. And so it does take some time and planning, but it's incredibly rewarding. So in the 20-some years that we've been at Sunlight, I think we have maybe been in a small group maybe half of that time, and I can tell you uh, it's, a, it's like night and day, the difference between how not only how you feel when you come on Sundays and you see your, your small group members and it makes you feel like you're at home and you belong here. And when you're during those seasons of life, when you're just kind of in the distance, in the shadows, it's just, it's a different feel. So yeah, I can attest to how more meaningful uh, our lives have been when we've been in a, in a circle group. Thanks for sharing so openly, even though you're put on the spot. <laughs> Appreciate it. Let's thank them together, can we? That's why when John announced for the very first time this morning that the fall focus as the whole church family will be thinking about different themes together is going to be, I guess you could say, have a thread running through it of one anothering, of doing it together, of meeting in sunlight circles to think about the individual personal circles that you find yourself in as you live throughout the week. And the New Testament comes in quite handy when we pursue that kind of direction because you cannot read through the New Testament without realizing how much one anothering is talked about. 
The, the Greek word for one another is found 100 times in the New Testament. 100 times. That's a lot. New Testament's that big compared to the rest of the Bible, right? 100 times. And it's used, depending upon how you count it, for about 23 types of ways that God wants us to one another. Like I mentioned, John helped us focus on serving one another, praying for one another. This morning, we're going to think about a doubleheader. Next week, encouraging one another. There's about 20-something of those throughout the New Testament. And in order to experience the kind of relationships that God actually has in mind for us to experience, the ones he's actually designed for us and he wants us to taste in a deep kind of a way, we have to pay attention to what he said. You, you, you could say on one level that among other things, this gift of God's word is an owner's manual for healthy relationships. Now, when I first trusted Christ in high school, all I knew about the Bible was it was a book that included some old-fashioned stories, had some history in it, and in our home, a non-Christ-following home, you had to blow the dust off of it every time that you poured it off the shelf. That's all I knew about it. I had no idea that the gift of God's Word goes so much further than that. It goes even beyond who God is and what He thinks about you and me. It even goes beyond just what Jesus did for us on the cross that will make it possible for us to live with him for eternity. It also talks about life now, in the here and now. And so when I placed my trust in Christ, who had died for me about 2,000 years before my freshman year in high school, when I put my personal trust in him, I didn't have to wait until heaven to experience something that he wanted me to experience in the in-between in the meantime. That was a part of the great news I didn't even know was coming. But as I look back now, I don't know where I'd be without the second part of the great news. So when God gives us clear and specific guidance on how to relate within his family, he does it because he knows we need it. So we're gonna, we're gonna just focus in on one verse. I'm not gonna put it up on the screen yet, but I want to make one observation about all the one another's about whether it's serving, encouraging, praying for, loving, all the one another's. Three observations that I think are true about all of them. One of these Brad just referred to. Number one, they do not come automatically. They do not come automatically. When each of you and I wake up in the morning, we are not in one another mode. We are not in a mode of community, like Ryan described. We're not in a mode of connection. We're more in a mode of, like what Brad mentioned, that's so easy for us to fall into, easy for me to fall into, accomplishment mode. What do I need to accomplish? What's on my list? What will make today a successful day for moi? That's, that's what we're thinking about when we get up and we get going. The second observation is what Brad actually mentioned. Because they're not automatic, which is one of the reasons why I believe there's so many references to them in the New Testament, we have to be reminded all the time, but because they're not automatic, we have to intentionally pursue them. We have to be purposeful about it. It's like you, you can't get in, in shape for a sport, some of you middle school and high school students who are getting ready for a sport, you can't get ready for a sport without preparing yourself, without purposefully doing certain drills to develop certain skills. You, you can't do it. It's the same 
in the relationships that God wants us to experience with each other. The same concept. And the third thing that I believe ties this all together about these godly and healthy ways that we should relate is this. They really are, each of them, made up of two parts, two dynamics maybe. And part, part of it is what the kind of person I need to be, how I need to treat others. And the second half is how I need to put myself and my heart in place so that somebody else can have a chance to treat me the same way. It is a two-way street, and that's the way God wants it to be. So this morning, like I mentioned before, we're gonna be looking at a double header, meaning two at once, because they're found together, and I believe that individually, they're two of the most challenging one another's in the New Testament. So whatever you need to do, deep breath, buckle up, however, however you put it in yourself, here it is. This comes from the passage, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, which summarizes these two, but they're, not, they're found many other places in the New Testament. Here's what Paul wrote to a church family in Colossae. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. There they are. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Just before we go on, I just want you just to pause for a moment and just in your heart of hearts, just ask God to help you right now, to help you be open to what he has to say to you this morning. Maybe you can, to focus on that, bow your head and close your eyes, and then I'll pray briefly after a moment. Heavenly Father, please give us the ability to be honest with you, to be honest with ourselves, and to move toward experiencing the kind of healthy relationships that you have in mind for us in your family. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So only recently had I noticed that these two, I guess you could say, one another's, that I would have put maybe in the same category in the past, I've noticed that Paul makes a definite distinction between them. You notice that? It's not a, a Siamese twin, but it is something that's very similar. He wants us to bear with each other and also forgive each other. As we think about the two of these more deeply, um, I just want to make one observation as we get started. My honest human heart that struggles with sinfulness and selfishness has always wrapped those two together. Not always, most of the time. Has most of the time wrapped those two together. That if I need to bear with somebody, and the translation we'd use in modern day English is put up with other people. If I need to bear with, put up with somebody, then I also actually have to forgive them. But I wasn't allowing myself to realize that it's possible for somebody to annoy me, to bug me, without them needing to be forgiven by me. That was like breaking news 
when I looked at this passage. It's like, wow, how many times do I in my life treat people as if they need to be forgiven when they're just being irritating? And I'm never irritating. (laughs) I never bug anybody. Just ask my 29-year-old son and 27-year-old daughter. Just had a family getaway with them. It was the first one in years. I really, really, really was focusing on not being annoying. Because <laughs> I'm the old guy, the, the dad that always does things a certain way. I was really focusing on not being annoying. But I want to say it, earlier in the summer, before I looked at this passage and really chewed on it and struggled and wrestled with it, I think I would have been going in with a bit of a different agenda. And that is to have everything be executed the way that I want to be executed and focus on them not being annoying. (laughs) Because they can be annoying too, and it's not just because they're millennials. I love millennials, (laughs) going back to what Ryan was saying. So when we think about this, there's a distinction, and the verse gives it to us. We need to put up with people that might irritate us, even though the word irritation is not used. What's not used is used in the second phase. And forgive those we have a grievance against. In other words, people that hurt us, forgiveness is in play. It is necessary. However, being annoying, irritating, is in the realm of putting up with. So as you look at this verse, when you get to the one another, the one another challenge, bear with each other, forgive one another, comes right after something that Paul does here and maybe one or two other places and the apostle Peter might have done it one other place. Notice, he gets us ready for the challenge. Before he even mentions what the one another's are, he gets a running start. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Holy means not perfect. It means set apart in God's eyes. And dearly loved means just what it sounds like. The agape that John's been focusing on the last few weeks, dearly loved means God loves you personally. The God of the universe sacrificially, intently cares about you, your heart, your desires, your needs, and wants to be close to you. That that's where it all begins. And then he says, I want you to suit up in five or six different ways. I want you to get ready for this. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, which I didn't the first time I was exposed to this, there is another place in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter six, where we're encouraged to wear the armor of God. Okay, trivia question, not so trivial. When we're to put on the armor of God, what's the purpose? To resist the evil one, to resist all the, the, the world and the flesh and the devil and all the ways that would tempt us to go a different direction. So we are, so the analogy in that case is a battle set of our armor, okay? We're to put on the armor of God because we're in battle. It's interesting that Paul doesn't use that same analogy here. He also wrote to the church at Ephesus, but here he uses the analogy of dressing up, of suiting up. A little bit less like a football player who puts on the pads, getting ready for contact and everything, a little bit less like a football player and a little bit more like a a surgeon. A surgeon who's putting the gloves on and getting the mask on because they're gearing up to bring health into somebody's body, into somebody's life. 
I, I think the surgeon is a better analogy. And he says, but before you, you make this relational connection, instead of battle, before you make this relational connection, there are five articles of clothing you need to suit up in. And we're just gonna go through these briefly, but each of these requires much more than this. The first one is compassion. A good working definition, showing a soft heart to the hurting. In other words, Paul is telling us, I want you to suit up so that you can move toward the hurt in somebody's heart. Instead of suiting up to confront somebody and get them to see that you're right and get them to change. That's not what compassion is. Compassion is to move toward a hurting heart with comfort instead of moving toward a resistant heart with strength. Harsh versus gentle. And it's interesting that gentle we will find ourselves looking at as we look down the list. The second one is kindness. Relating to others graciously. Notice so far, both of these are verbs. They're not just personality traits. These are actions, things we have to put in action. Relating to others graciously. But it's a whole lot more than just being nice. It's a whole lot more than just smiling, being calm. It's actually compassion in action. Compassion and kindness almost fit together like a pair. I married a wife who is incredibly kind. And her kindness is more than just her smiling, pleasant demeanor. She has that too. But she actually puts it into action. She met a mother and a daughter here. Uh, she was able to come twice this summer. And I don't know, a couple months ago, she met a mother and daughter here. And she sent me with a special gift for them this morning to make sure that I could find them to encourage them as they're going through a challenge in their lives. That's kindness. It has, it has teeth to it in a positive, pleasant way. Then there's humility. Humility, seeing the needs of others is more important. Humility is a perspective change. We have to look at things completely differently rather than doing what comes naturally, which is what? Revolving our whole day, revolving our whole life, revolving our whole focus around what I'd like to experience in life. This is a whole different picture. It's putting the needs of others more important than mine. My mentor in high school and college, his name was Kevin, and uh, Kevin was trying to work with me on this because I was not very far down the road. I'd only been a trusted Christ when I was a freshman in high school. I hadn't developed this, uh, you could say, article of clothing and didn't wear it very often in my relationships. And he gave me an example one time that I've never forgotten. He said that every day that he got up and he took a shower, he decided when he was in that shower who he was going to live for that day. Never forgotten that. And I want to say two out of three showers that I take, I think about it. Who am I going to live for today? Am I going to live today for myself or for others? When you make that perspective shift, you put on the article of clothing known as humility, which leads to the next article of clothing. Treating the needs of others is more important not only seeing it as more important, but actually treating it as more important 
with my priorities, with my daily list, treating other people's needs as more important rather than insisting or demanding that other people hear how important my desires are or how vital it is for me to get my list done. Same mentor, Kevin, approached me one time because I had been conducting myself. We were part of a team he was leading. I was a college student at the time. There were other college students in different leadership positions in the room. And he led a couple meetings, and he noticed that I was coming across in a way that was very sarcastic, one of my biggest struggles in life, and that was putting other people off, including him as he was leading the meetings. When he pulled me aside, he approached me out of humility with real gentleness. He actually started the conversation by saying this, Steve, I don't think that you are wanting to come across this way because this isn't the way you normally are. But here's what I've been experiencing and here's how people around you and myself have been responding. He almost felt bad, I could tell, for having even to talk to me about it. He wasn't coming in saying, you need to respect me more in these meetings. He was coming in for my benefit, for something that had to change in me that would produce more healthy relationships with those around me. Gentleness. Finally, the fifth one, patience. Enduring when others annoy or, and underline the or, or hurt me. Enduring when others annoy or hurt me. What's enduring the opposite of? Maybe avoiding? Maybe uh, withdrawing? Withdrawing from relationship? Maybe punishing? Maybe passive aggressiveness? It could take different forms, but what God wants us to do is to patiently move toward each other. Those of you who were here on July 28th, Neil shared a very open, authentic message on patience something that he outwardly expressed is on short supply in his heart. I'm in his club, and I know many of you were too, because this is something we have to wrestle with and put it on daily, sometimes several times a day, no matter if we're being annoyed or if we're being hurt or sinned against. And then after the dual encouragement to Put up with each other and forgive each other. Look at the verse that closes the paragraph. It's verse 14. Here's what it says. And over all these virtues, those articles of clothing we just looked at, put on what? Love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And it's interesting that love one another is the most often used by far one another in the whole New Testament. So now that we're suited up, now that we're ready to go, and obviously this is something we have to resuit ourselves for, to be like a surgeon, putting the gloves on, putting the mask on, washing up, how can we take that into these two one another's? And let's put them up here in two different versions. The first is NIV, the second is NLT. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I like a little bit, in some ways, how the NLT translates it. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you, parentheses, directly and personally. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So let's just think for two minutes about 
putting up with each other. I think one of the easiest crowd breakers to have around a table if you're sitting with people you don't know and you want to get them talking, one of the biggest crowd breakers you can start with is asking this question. What is your biggest pet peeve? You want to get people talking? Talk about pet peeves. And then as you hear people talking about pet peeves, you know what you notice? About 90% of them have something to do with other people on the planet we, we live beside. Hardly any of them have things like, oh, my pet peeve is when the temperature drops really quickly. No, most pet peeves have to do with relational issues, relational annoyances, and they're easy to talk about. Also, one of the easiest mistakes for us to make is to assume that these pet peeves we have need to be forgiven, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I moved to Michigan in 1991. And I need, need, need to say more, being a big college football fan, what the implication of that was, right? I was thrust into a very annoying environment and I was not only annoyed by people that were not rooting for the Buckeyes in that big game every November, 3rd November, 4th Saturday November, whichever it is now, but boy, if they didn't, how do I say it? If they didn't handle it more graciously when they won, I didn't know if I could handle it anymore. So I got there in 91, for those of you who follow college football, Ohio State won twice during the 90s, twice in that game. Now, it's been different in the new millennium, hallelujah, but back then, it, it went twice. And I'll tell you what, nothing bothered me more, and there's the word bothered, than the arrogance of Michigan fans. And I wouldn't say that if I were 10 miles north of here, probably, but nothing, nothing bothered me more than the arrogance. It wasn't just the fact they won, it's how they won. And so what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to realize, hey, that's not something that I need to forgive. That is something that kind of comes with the territory <laughs> of where I live and who I'm dealing with. I need to be patient with it, not take it so personally, which really applies to all of the application of this in our lives. How can we put those articles of clothing to work when it comes to putting up with each other, with bearing with each other? Well, with patience, we don't take it as personally. With humility, we realize, kind of like I mentioned earlier, we can be annoying too. Do you believe that about yourself? If you don't believe it about yourself, spend some time reflecting on that or ask an open-ended question at lunch today. Uh, maybe not in front of everybody, maybe one-on-one. -on -one. Just, can I be annoying? Can I be hard to live with at times? Most of us don't have to ask that. And although it's not stated, it seems to be implied in these verse, this verse. Well, I'm, let's go back, I'm sorry. It seems to be implied. No, yeah, Becca, let's do that. Let's go to the next slide. It seems to be implied in this verse that, hey, just like God's forgiveness is required to experience what it's like to forgive one another, also patience is required to put up with each other, as with all the other articles of clothing we put on. Although it's not stated, I think it's implied, we need to put up with other people in the same way that God puts up with us. Remember my children, when they, when they sang a song as a kid, they sang a song that was like, 
Be patient, be patient, be patient. Don't be in such a hurry. Ever heard that song? And then the whole long line ends with, be patient because God's patient too. It's like that's the whole basis for it, just like with forgiveness. Even though it's not stated, it's implied. I encourage you to think about that. Aaron's gonna come up and get ready to lead us in a worship song, but I encourage you to think about that aspect of bearing with each other and putting up with each other. The second thing is this, forgiving one another, which we do not have enough time to think about. When somebody actually offends you and sins against you, this is not just being annoying, bothersome, an arrogant college football fan. This is something much deeper, much more personal, much more direct. The New Testament talks a lot about how to deal with this. It talks about how we need to seek forgiveness when we have hurt somebody else. Jesus brings that up in the Sermon on the Mount. What do you do when you offend somebody? How do you handle that? Well, you go and you work it out with them and you ask for forgiveness. The New Testament also includes, Matthew 18, for example, many examples of what to do when somebody has offended us. How do we handle that? Because when you forgive one another, it's a two-way street. It's not just me forgiving somebody else for how they offend me. It's giving them the opportunity to forgive me for how I've offended them. And that's so vital for us to realize. I've really done a lot of thinking and wrestling with this whole concept of forgiveness, and there's so much to say. But I want to make just one observation that maybe you can think about. And that is, love left on its own cannot produce the deepest relationship. Only forgiveness can do that. Think about that for a moment. John 3.16, which John quoted in the last couple weeks, says, for God so loved the world. He so loved us. But his love doesn't produce a relationship with him, does it? God loves everybody in this planet. Always has, always will. He loves them. But whether or not that love turns into a relationship requires what? Forgiveness. Jesus had to come to suffer on the cross and take the punishment that we deserve for our sinfulness, most of which, by the way, is relational sin. He bore that on his shoulders so that, what? We could have a relationship with him. When I trusted Christ as a ninth grader, I didn't fully realize that there was so much more to it than the fact that he loved me and he wanted me to come to heaven. That was good enough news. But to realize that he wanted a relationship with me and he wanted me to be able to enjoy that relationship and that's why he died for me, that changed everything. So when we read the words, forgive as the Lord forgave you, just think about that for a moment. It bears more than a moment, but I'm just gonna wrap it up in three very brief observations. How should we forgive one another, whether offering it or asking for it, in a way that's like Christ forgave us? Here's three starter, starter points. When Christ approaches us to offer us forgiveness, Christ forgave you, he does it so that we could be close. He doesn't do it to prove that he was right. And aren't we all glad for that? 
aren't we all glad that finally, Steve, I'm glad you finally acknowledged you blew it again. Okay, go off and do your thing. No, he does it so we can be close, so our hearts can draw closer to his heart. The same should be true about how we forgive one another, that we're not just saying, gotcha this time, no wiggling out of it. No, the purpose is so that our relationship can be deeper and healthier. Second implication, God forgives us time and time again. It wasn't just that one time when I was in ninth grade that I asked him to forgive my sins, past, present, and future, and he did, and then I was kind of on my own to scrub my own heart through the rest of my life. Nope. He keeps on forgiving me as I come to him in confession, as I ask him to purify my heart. He keeps on forgiving me. Same should be true in our relationships with each other. I forgave you once, but not this time. Shouldn't be part of our vocabulary. Third implication, God's forgiveness freely flows. There are so many places in the Old New Testament he's described as being a forgiving God. In other words, he's looking to forgive. He's not looking to condemn. Jesus said that himself, John chapter three. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to forgive the world. That's what he expressed. And we should have the same attitude. As Aaron plays, why don't you bow your head and close your eyes and just talk to the Lord about whatever you want to talk to him about. Whether it's how you can strive toward putting up with other brothers and sisters in his family or how you need to extend forgiveness or ask for it from others in his family. But whichever way, just spend some time reflecting on that.